Thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication, and I'll invite you to turn your Bible or your neighbor's Bible or some Bible close to you, as long as you get permission, to the book of Ruth. It's been a while since we have journeyed in the Old Testament, and I had to go back and kind of brush off some of the pages and get back in there, having been so long in First Peter, but it's, um, it's been really invigorating for me to, to get back into studying the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Ruth, and so I invite you to turn to chapter 1. As we look at this beautiful love story, if you will, a wonderful historical book, a uh, great narrative, and certainly a, a, a perfect indication of the, of the providential work of the sovereign God in sometimes unexpected ways to fulfill his redemptive plan for humanity. And so we'll be looking, beginning in chapter 1 this morning. As we think about the book of Ruth, you have to kind of put it in context. Of course, Ruth follows the book of Judges, and precedes the book of First uh, Samuel. And so in the historical context, you're talking about a time period that's a little over a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Uh, Joshua, that great uh, man of God, uh, was the last real central leader, if you will, of the, of the Israelites, of the people of God. Following that, there was no, has not been, a strong God-anointed leader of the people and so uh, we, we're at that time period and Ruth the book of Ruth is wedged right in between that this is before the the monarchy so this is a pre-monarchal stage in the history of Israel we're right at the verge of moving into a time when God will raise up kings and they will be great leaders over the people of God well I'll say some of them were we'll see uh, how that plays out but if I, was, if I was searching for a theme to guide in this study of, and, and, and this series of messages in the book of Ruth, I, I think I would fall on something like God's making of a royal monarchy. God's got a plan. He's got an idea. <laughs> you know, God's got a purpose. And he's moving towards the fulfillment of his divine redemptive plan for all of humanity. And God is going to be raising up kings. But more importantly, and looking to the ultimate end of God's plan, we know that God has a plan in which he's going to raise up the king of kings, who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Ruth fits into that plan. And so as we look at the, the background, you, you have to think about this book and the uniqueness of this book. Ruth, along with the book of Esther, are the only two books in the Bible that uh, lend their names to women. And then Ruth is only mentioned. I mean, as prevalent and prominent as this little book is, Ruth is only mentioned a couple of times in the Bible. Here, of course, in the book of Ruth. But then, over in the genealogy that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, of Jesus Christ, there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, you find reference to Ruth. Otherwise, the Bible is fairly mute on Ruth. But yet, don't let her rather insignificant place in the scriptures downplay the significance of the role that she had in God's redemptive plan. According to Jewish tradition, the book of Ruth was written by Samuel. Though some scholars may debate that, different reasons, but, but primarily the, uh, the writing of the book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is given over to Samuel. And literary, literary experts extol this small book as being somewhat of a masterpiece 
of literature. One scholar said that what Venus is to statuary, statues, and Mona Lisa is to paintings, Ruth is to literature. And the writer, Samuel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, unfolds this gripping and beautiful story that, uh, that carries you along and, and is so perfectly timed and, 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 and the development of the storyline and the suspense and, and the drama and, and, and the, you know, the ups and the downs of the emotions that range in the book. So yeah, a, a beautiful literary work. And so with that little bit of background there, and I'm sure as I take us through the book of Ruth and Sundays to come, there'll be other tidbits that, that God will put on my heart that I can share with you. And, and I'll say also, uh, I, I know I've mentioned this before, that I, I do print out my outline and it's back there at the information desk. And uh, if you, and that way if you say, oh my goodness, I, I didn't get that scripture verse or that, you know, it's there. If you want to get that, um, and it's available, okay? But first thing I want us to look at is we open up the book of Ruth and the, and the curtain comes back on the drama of, of, of this episode in the life of the people of Israel. The first thing that I want us to see is what I entitled the, the, the suspicious sojourn. The suspicious sojourn. A, a, a subtitle for that would be simply um, the prodigal family. We all know the parable of the prodigal son, but, but think in terms of a prodigal family. And you'll see what I'm talking about in just a minute. As we look at chapter 1, let's begin in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So historically, we know that, that what is transpiring in this story is still during the time uh, when God is raising up judges. And I'll explain that in just a second. In the, uh, so in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn or travel in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was uh, Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion, Ephrathites, that is, people who lived in the region of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, or Ephratah, were called Ephrathites of Bethlehem. We all recognize that little town, Judah, the tribe of Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, first of all, I want us to see the names are important. Don't overlook the significance of names in the scriptures and how they are used and played upon to carry along the storyline. And so we have the, the name of the town that Elimelech is from, and that is, of course, Bethlehem. In the Hebrew, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. And you see the irony right, off the, uh, right out, out of the gate. Here the, in the region, in the town that is known as a house of bread, the pantry is empty. There's no bread. There's a famine in the land. And so uh, it's interesting as you look at the contrast, as you look at these names, Bethlehem of Judah. And Judah, of course, means praise. This is a dark time spiritually in the nation of Israel, folks. That's why the book of Judges. And, and so the people are engaged in apostasy and immorality and idolatry. And so in a very dark time, there, there really is little praise to Jehovah 
from the tribe of Judah or for that matter any other tribes. And so uh, there's contrast there. There's, there's irony there. Let's look at the name of the man Elimelech. I don't know how many of you all named your sons or anybody carry that. Not many people walking around, you know, a name Elimelech, just like you don't find many named Judas. But uh, Elimelech in, in the scriptures means my God is king. My God, Yahweh, is king. And yet you'll find in the actions of this man and his family, there's very little indication that he is looking to the king. In fact, there's, there's no indication that Elimelech has a relationship with God or is dependent upon God or trusting in God. Again, the, the irony there. Naomi. Naomi. Isn't that one of the judge? Uh, anyway, I, you, you hear that name around. I'm not a big country fan, but anyway. Naomi in, in the Hebrew means pleasant. I like how Dr. J. Vernon McGee described her name. He says, oh, pleasant doesn't really capture it. Let's call her uh, uh, Mary, as in M-E-R-R-Y, Mary Sunshine. I mean, don't, don't, uh, don't uh, cheat her of any credit. Naomi, pleasant sunshine, Mary Sunshine. Now, you'll see that really doesn't fit Naomi at this point in time. One day it might. Well, what about, what about the sons? Those darling sons of Elimelech and Naomi that they make reference to here. The first one, Machlon, if you will. His name means unhealthy. Unhealthy. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't tell you. I mean, that's not too encouraging when your son starts out in life as unhealthy. And his brother. Maybe there's hope in Kilion. Maybe Kilion's got the, got the charm and everything. And so in the Hebrew, his name means puny. So there's the model Hebrew family, if you will. You know, uh, you got Elimelech, God is my king, and Naomi, Miss Sunshine, with two boys, unhealthy and puny. And uh, so anyway, this tells you kind of how the story might go. But before we journey, before the sojourn, if you will, the travel, let's look at what's going on in the country. There's a famine, of course we see that there, given to us in that first verse. A famine in the land. Folks, a famine in that time, in the midst of God's people, oftentimes represented the judgment of God. God was bringing upon His people judgment. This was not some meteorological coincidence. It's God's chastisement of His wayward people. And so there was a, a, a famine in the land. Why? Because God's people, all through the book of Judges, in fact, back up in your Bible, just, just the next page over, to chapter 21, verse 25. The last verse of the last chapter gives you a good idea of what the book of Judges tells us about what was going on spiritually in the life of God's people. In verse 25 of chapter 21 of Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's an Old Testament rendition of moral relativism that is eating the life, the spiritual life, and the moral fiber of our country today. Some things just never go away. So everybody was doing as they felt was right in their own eyes. There's anarchy. There's no central leadership. The people are not faithful to God. In fact, as you look at the book of 
judges. And I remember we went through a study by Dr. Henry Blackaby called Fresh Encounter. And it focused on the book of Judges. And he, and he revealed a pattern, a cycle. The people of God were caught up in this vicious cycle where God would bless them and things would go well. They were living in you know, comfort and ease, but then they would begin to stray. Their eyes would be off of God. They began to tamper with and sample some of the things of the pagan nations around them. They began to experiment with idolatry and immorality and, and all kinds of hideous things that were certainly in violation of what God... So they would wander into sins of idolatry and pagan worship and immorality. And the next thing that would happen is God would chastise them. And oftentimes God would chastise his people by raising up some foreign people or nation that would invade the land, kill the people, ruin the crops, go off with the animals. And, and so this, okay, so then the people in their, in their misery would cry out to God. And God would raise up judges. These are simply charismatic leaders that God anointed with His Holy Spirit to come to the rescue of the people. You know the famous ones like uh, uh, Samson and, and um, uh, Gideon, uh, Deborah, uh, some of those who God used as a mighty uh, deliverer of His people. So God would deliver the people following the cycle. God blesses, they rebel, they cry, they, God chastises, they cry out to God. And then God then, of course, sends rescue and everything is good and they're blessed. And then, da-da-da, back to immorality. Da, so over and over and over, a pattern of rebellion against God. And yet we continue to see the mercy of God. We continue to see the grace of God extended to an unworthy people. So this is, so this is behind the famine. How do we know that? Obviously people... The Israelites didn't know this, or they should have known it. But the fact is, you don't see any sign of repentance on the part of the people. You don't see them confessing their sin. You don't see them crying out to God for His removal of the famine or to, to, to take ownership of the responsibility for the famine. Had they known the Word of God, had they just gone back and researched passages like in Leviticus in chapter 26, God was so plain in verse 14 of Leviticus 26, God says, But if you do not obey me, and this is God's forewarning, this is early in his covenant relationship with Israel. He said, Now listen, this is the way my relationship with you is going to be. If you obey me and honor me, I will bless you. But, he says, if you do not obey me, and do not observe these commandments. And if you despise my statutes, and if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which, causes, uh, which shall consume the eye and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed, and in vain your, for your enemies shall eat it. And in verse 20, And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Over in verse 26, Leviticus 26, When I have cut off your supply of bread, hence the house of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. This is a, a critical food shortage. 
And they shall bring back to you your bread by weight. In other words, portioned out. And you shall eat and not be satisfied. God says, I will cut off your food supply. And even over in the book of Deuteronomy, reinforcing that, chapter 28, we hear these words from the Lord. As he says in verse 23, And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven. It shall come down on you until you are destroyed. God warned them. You disobey me. You rebel against me. And I will bring judgment in a way that is critical to an agrarian society. And that is by bringing a famine. So, so understand, this is not just some coincidence. And yet the people are ignorant. And I think about the ignorance of our culture today. People wonder, why are these hor horrific natural catastrophes happening? And, and why are there so much violence and, and so much hatred and suspicion? And, and why are families torn asunder? And, and why is there so much evil and, and deception at our levels of leadership? Folks, God's already warned us. Take your eyes off of God. Start practicing sin. And making a mockery of his, 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 his commandments and His Word. And God says, I'll take my hand off of you. And the consequences aren't pleasant. So we see a people who are ignorant even to the teachings of word, God, well, the Word of God. They have no clue why they're suffering the way they are. Elimelech is a, a type of citizen, if you will. He's the only one that we know that went to Moab. But I think he represents a lot of Israelites of that day. Instead of, instead of Elimelech getting his people around the altar and, and making sacrifices and crying out to God and acknowledging their hard-headed rebellion against God and, and how they had, had turned their backs on God and how they had committed hideous sins in the presence of God and asking the Lord to forgive them and, and to once again show favor upon them, he comes up with a brilliant solution. Let's just pack up our things, kind of like Jed Clampett and go to Beverly, right? Yeah, yeah, let's just go. Let's just move. Let's just relocate. Oh, speaking of names. They decided that we're going to go to Moab. I would recommend that be where you and your family spend your summer vacation. I mean, let's remember what the scripture tells us very plainly. Moab got its name from its contemptible origins, which can be traced back to a to Lot's incestuous relationship with his two daughters. That's how to start a strong nation, right? And hence the Moabites. In fact, God didn't have much good to say about the nation of Moab. Listen to what he says about Moab, the nation, in Psalm 108, 9. Psalm 108, verse 9. God says, Moab is my washpot. It's my garbage can. And so this is where Elimelech says, yeah, tell you what, let's leave the house of bread and head on down to the garbage can, okay? Everything's going to be licking up from there. there. Yeah. So we're talking about a family's unwise response to the circumstances that they find themselves in. How many, how many people calling themselves God's people act and think just like that? 
ignoring the teachings of the scriptures, ignoring what may be going on in their lives, and ignoring the fact that God may be waiting on them to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord in humility, and they come up with some scheme. Oh, well, well, you know, I'll, I'll just do this, or I'll just, we can do that. And so off we go on this suspicious sojourn, if you will. You know, as I think about Elimelech and Naomi and, and McClone and Kilion riding in their station wagon, camel-driven station wagon down to the garbage can to live, I think about, you know, another story, New Testament, Luke chapter 15. Jesus talked about a young man who headed me. A young man lived in his father's household and had everything he needed. And all of a sudden came up with the wise idea that he could take everything that he had coming to him in his inheritance. And you know this as the, the parable of the prodigal son. And he went to a far land. I don't know if it was a garbage can, but it was some foreign land. And there, like leeches, uh, his so-called friends, as long as he had money, they were all over him. Man, he was the most popular thing. Everybody loved him. And oh, they were, you know, visiting him. And they spent his money till it was all gone. And there he was in a foreign land, far away from his dad, desperate because there was a famine in the land. And here this proud, you know, prosperous Jewish young man found himself hired out to a pig farmer. Now, I don't know how many of you country people, but I'm going to tell you something. There's not a lot that's charming about a hog farm, all right? It stinks, it's dirty, and it's just, well, what do you expect? I still like my barbecue, though. <laughs> and there's this young man out in this foreign land, broke as he can be, hungry as starving. So much so that the Scriptures tells us that he's eating with the pigs. And here's Elimelech going to make things better for him and his family irregardless of what God may have in mind and they haul off down to Moab. Oh, by the way, yet there's not another parallel in this story. I mean, don't miss them. Because Elimelech's great, 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 wherever, grandfather, Abraham. God brought Abraham from the land of the region of Haran all the way over to the promised land, Canaan, if you will. Told him, said, look around. All of this is yours. Uh, and your, your descendants will be more than the stars. This land is yours. I'll provide for you. All you got to do is be my man. A famine came. Isn't it interesting that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, that Abraham's response to the famine, he didn't pray. He didn't build an altar to seek God's will. In his own mind, he thought, well, you know, I can solve this. Come on, Sarah, let's go to Egypt. And oh, by the way, honey, as we're approaching the border guards to Egypt, you're a beautiful woman, very striking. And I'm sure the Pharaoh probably wants you, and therefore he'll probably kill me. So if you don't mind, just tell everybody down that way that you're my sister. Of course, that was a mess. You see what happens when we begin to scheme and try to come up with ideas and ways to solve problems that God is wanting us to turn to Him, depend upon Him? And so Abraham's mistake was costly, almost cost him his wife. Pharaoh could have killed him anyway when he found out that this was actually Abraham's... God had to step in and say, Pharaoh, don't touch that woman. 
She's married. If you do, you're in big trouble. And Pharaoh told Abraham, get out of here. Take your wife and everything. Get out of here. You got God mad at me. So we see a parallel in other portions of Scripture in Elimelech and his family in this what I call suspicious sojourn to, to Moab. But we see a failure to know God's will. That's at the heart of, of what's going on, folks. It's at the heart of the national problem. It's at the heart of the personal problem. And you know, the, the amazing thing is we don't have to do rituals and, and, and conjure up all these spells and we don't have to go on mystical you know, pilgrimages to, to so-called sacred places to somehow discover God's will. <laughs> In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God is screaming from the pages of His Word by the power of His Holy Spirit. You want to know my will? This is my will. God's will is no secret. The problem is, is we're spiritually blind. We're spiritually deaf. We're steeped in pride and we can't humble ourselves to seek God's will. So one of Elimelech's problems was he didn't know God's will. But you can't blame God. You can't blame the Lord. He couldn't and you can't. And not only that, like so many of God's people, he failed to trust the Lord. He failed to trust God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells it so plainly. We're drilling that into our team kids on Sunday night. That's their memory verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. Oh, if only Elimelech had known that. Oh, if only Israel had known that and, and practiced that. The grief they could have spared themselves of. Oh, if only churches would practice that. Oh, if only Christians would practice that. Oh, to God, that we would have just a handful of, of, of leaders with character and integrity who would dare to step out from the world's crowd and say, listen, let's seek the will of God. And when we find the will of God, let's trust Him. Not our military, not our, not our political process, not the Supreme Court. So, the family sojourns down into Moab. It's going to crank up, folks. I know y'all are thinking, oh my goodness, would you look at that? Alright, verse 3. <laughs> then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And was left, and she was left. And her two sons. Now you'll notice in verse 2, these boys were his two sons. Now that he's dead, they're her two sons. So you get a gradual shift from a patriarchal family arrangement to a matriarchal. Now Naomi is in charge of the family clan, at least for that time. But but the situation, they go from on this, this redemptive journey, they thought into a terrible crisis, a great crisis, from famine to alienation to destitution. 
Naomi's situation is critical, folks. She's facing a very desperate situation. She's a widow in a foreign land. It's bad enough to be a widow in your own culture, but to be in a foreign land as a foreigner and your husband, your, his, your only support of identity, your only source of support and identity is gone. Oh, she's in a bad way. But listen, it gets worse. Just when you think, oh my goodness, poor Naomi. Because in verse 4, right off it says, Now they, this is the two sons, took wives of the women of Moab. And by the way, this is against the Mosaic law. So under her leadership of the clan, she's letting her sons marry uh, foreign wives, you know, that, that God has expressly forbidden in his law. And the name of one was Orpah. I will keep on to say Oprah. Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. How can the situation go from bad to worse? She's gone from a point of alienation and destitution to Naomi's dismal prospect for progeny because her sons married to foreign wives for 10 years, not a sign of a baby. They're barren. But look at verse 5. Then both Maclon and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Now she's got no husband, no sons. They have failed to bear her any descendants. The family name is as good as dead. Things just aren't looking too encouraging and too good. I thought about, Pastor Mark was asking me about possible songs for the service today. And I, I dared to suggest maybe gloom, despair, excessive misery, deep down depression has settled in on me from Hee Haw, but he didn't think that would be too kosher. So we, we nits that idea. Thank you, brother. God bless you. But just remember, in the darkness of the circumstances, God is still at work. I promise you. Our sovereign holy God is not up on his throne in heaven watching this sojourn of, of, of this family sojourn down into Moab, wringing his hands and saying, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? God is working. Folks, it's important for you and me to understand that our God is beyond our circumstances. He's beyond our dealings. God can work in the most unlikely situations and circumstances to fulfill His divine redemptive plan. And even at this point, when it looks so dismal and so hopeless, God is still working. And, fi and finally, I want us to look at Naomi's return to uncertainty in Judah. Her sons are dead. She's in a foreign country. Let's pick up very quickly here and we will move along. In verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab. Why? For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Hallelujah! Was there a great revival in, in Egypt? I mean, in Israel? In Judah? Were the people turning to God in brokenness and repentance and said, Oh God, forgive us of our sins? And God, no. God gave them food. That's grace. That's grace. God extended grace in an Old Testament setting because He's God, because God set in the stage. He needed to get Naomi, but more importantly, He needed to get Ruth back into Bethlehem. Something's about to happen.
Therefore she went out from the place where she was, her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on, their, on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you. And it's interesting because Naomi doesn't present as one who is a very spiritual person, but she understood God's jurisdiction. She understood that even though she was in Moab, Jehovah, the only true God, Yahweh, was still in control. She could, she could call upon the Lord to bless her daughter-in-laws because she knew this was the nature of God. So she's telling her daughter-in-laws, listen, and, and folks, she's not trying to you know, ditch them. She realizes their chances of, of, of making it back in Judah aren't really good. Because after all, they're foreign women. They're Moabites. Folks, that's just a, a, a shave above a termite when you get back to Judah. Yeah. Folks don't really cater to Moabites back then. Now, you might have some Moabite friends, and I don't want to offend you. But the fact is, she understood. It would be an uphill battle. It would be a struggle for them. So she's passionately and compassionately offering this selfless appeal. And it's almost like a command to her daughters-in-laws. You see, again, if I can go back to the parable of the prodigal son, the parable, the prodigal son got to a point where he came to his senses. Eating with the pigs, desperate, he thought, he remembered. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Even the servants in my dad's house have it better than I do. I'm going back home. Naomi got word that there's food back home. And she realizes her only hope is to go back home. You know, in a spiritual sense, ladies and gentlemen, Home for you and me is being close to the Lord. If you find the world wooing you out there and maybe temptation and other struggles have, have pulled you away from a close, intimate walk with the Lord in studying the Word of God and praying and feeling that closeness with God, let me tell you something. It's homecoming time. It's homecoming time. Stop eating out the garbage can of the world. Stop trying to satisfy the spiritual appetite that God has put in your heart with the things of the world and of humanism and of the flesh and, and, and turn your eyes, come to your senses and go back where the spiritual nourishment is and it's right close with God. Amen? I'm about to start paying a quarter for amens so I can get a few more. That's the truth. It's the truth. And so... In verse 9, she said, The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. She said, You go back. There's no future for you really with me. Go back to your mother's house. Your mother, oh, you know, your daddy might be mad at you but for marrying these Jewish boys, but your mama, you know, God bless mothers. <laughs> There's where the tenderness is. There's where the love and the forgiveness really is. You know, us hard-nosed dads, you know, we got to make you squirm. Not mama. Come, come here, sugar baby. Come here, honey. Here's your favorite brownie. I just think, yeah. <laughs> Jan's giving me that glare. <laughs> okay. But, so, but, but she said, there's no, really no real future for you. Go back. Find a husband. Have a life. She kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept in verse 10. And they said, surely we will return with you to, to your people. You know, the reason I think they said that is because these two Moabite young ladies saw in Elimelech and Naomi and Maclone and Kilion, even as flawed as they were, I think they saw there's something different about these people who call Yahweh God. 
as opposed to their false god. I believe that's what kept them hanging in there. And now they didn't even want to go back. Verse 11. But Naomi said, now Naomi's getting practical now. She's putting on the practicality apron now. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb? And, and, and that they may be your husbands? Because that was the Jewish tradition. If a husband died, the next brother, you would become the next brother's wife. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate that now. But anyway. <laughs> so Naomi's an old woman, y'all. She's, they estimate, 50 years old. Some of y'all said, yeah. Right. 50 years old. She said, just think about it. I can't have any more children. Verse 12. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If, if I should say I have... Verse uh, of 12. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them until they were grown 15, 16 years later? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That betrays a little bit of Naomi's theology and we'll address that later. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said in verse 15, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Now don't miss this. She's gone back to her people, and she's gone back to her gods. Chemosh, the Moabite god, the prevalent Moabite god. They had many gods, but, but he was the prevalent god. She's, she's going back to her god. We see something. Don't miss this. The contrast between Ruth and Orpah. Orpah finally, with some coaxing and some reasoning, says, yeah, you're right. My place is back with my people. They're pagan people. My place is back with my God, the false God, Chemosh. You're, you're right. I'm really not truly a follower of Yahweh. I think that Samuel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us that little glimpse right there. He's telling us something very significant of the difference between the two daughter-in-laws. They were good, good, good daughter-in-laws. They were faithful. They were good to their mother-in-law. Don't, don't make any mistake. Orpah was not a bad girl. She was simply still a pagan. She'd never trusted God. She'd never put a trust in Yahweh. Not ultimately. Because, because when, when Naomi urged Ruth to turn back to follow her sister-in-law, look at Ruth's response. Ruth's hallmark expression of loyalty to Naomi, but to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to God. Look, folks, you know, sometimes ministers use this in, in a wedding ceremony. She said to her response to, to, to Naomi is, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God didn't say will, didn't say shall. You see it? And your God, my God. Kind of like Tarzan talk. You, Jane, me, Tarzan. Yeah. Your God, my God. My God, your God. Your God, my God. My God, your God. We have the same God. That's the difference. God knew this. He knew it before Ruth was born. 
Folks, God's got a plan going on here. He sent this soldier and family down to the trash can of the nations to extract one jewel of a woman to escort her back to Judah. Not just Judah, but a little town called Bethlehem. I love the way God works. And she said in verse 17, Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth was bound to her mother-in-law. So much so, not just through family ties, not through emotional bonds. But Ruth was saying to Naomi, you are my sister in faith. And not only death, not even death will separate us. And then in verse 18, when Naomi saw that she, would not, that, that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now that doesn't mean she gave her the cold shoulder and wouldn't talk to her for the rest of the journey because the Lord knows it's a long journey. It's just simply, she's, Naomi got it. What can you say? What can you say? She's one of us. This is not a Moabite. This, this is an adopted Israelite because her God is my God. And she takes her on a journey. Folks, I don't care how far away you may sojourn in your journey of life. And I don't care how low you may wander and stoop away from the will of God and the plan of God. I don't care how dark things may appear around you spiritually. There's always a way home. God is always calling his people home. He had a plan for Naomi and her family. He, has, he had a plan for Ruth and has a plan as we'll see unfold. He still has a plan for this wayward, rebellious, idolatrous, ungodly nation called Israel. God's not finished. He's just calling them back to himself. And I encourage you to be encouragers to those that you know who may be prodigal sons and daughters, prodigal families. Don't give up on them. Remind them that there is hope. There is life. And coming to the Lord. That's what we're here. That's what we're to do. We'll continue in our next sermon.